implicit bias is only negative if you ignore it. When we know what our implicit biases are and can check ourselves, it's actually really powerful. You're listening to The Purple Stethoscope. I am your host, Devin Nixon, family nurse practitioner. None of the information in this podcast is sufficient nor intended to diagnose your personal medical issue, but there's a lot to learn, so let's start the show. Like most of us, I can remember back in the day watching Oprah, 4 o'clock, seeing what she was talking about, probably one of the most, probably the most informative and inspiring talk show of all time. Well, I mean, those aren't facts, but I'm getting there. I'll never forget the episode called Overcoming Prejudice. I want to say it aired... 15 or so years ago, maybe not quite 15 years ago, but that's how impactful it was to me. It stuck with me all this time. She had different guests on the show, um, a kid who was kicked out of his parents' house at 13 years old for coming out as gay, a guy who was a self-described racist. Um, There was a homeless teenager on the show and um, on and on. And basically the gist of the show were two things. Well, three things. Number one, we all have implicit bias. That's the first thing. Um, And there was a belief or at least a statement that was made on the show that white supremacy is so prevalent in the U.S. that even people of color have an implicit preference for lighter skin. Um, So that was the first thing. We all have implicit bias. And most of us who live in uh, places where white supremacy is prevalent prefer lighter skin. The second uh, takeaway for me was that our experiences shape our bias. Now, how could you say that somebody's experiences made them racist? Well, if they're constantly from the time of infancy being bombarded with racist propaganda then that's part of their experience. So they may not even know a person of color or have had any interactions, but if they've interacted with media, uh, they've received that messaging. The third takeaway, and this is the biggest one for me, is that we can change our bias. If we make ourselves aware that we harbor these different biases and how that plays out in our lives, we can actually consciously do the work to challenge that and change our own inner narrative. What I want you all to do right now, or if you're driving and you can't do this right now, do it later and then come back and listen to the rest of the podcast. But I want you to go to the Implicit Association test website, the um, 
link is in the show notes and click on the, the, the link to the Harvard Implicit Association test um, project implicit. And I want you to take it. The implicit association test is a measure within social psychology designed to detect the strength of a person's subconscious association between mental representations of objects in memory. And that might sound like a whole bunch of weird stuff, but it'll make a lot of sense after you take the test. It is um, actually pretty accurate. Um, And it's going to... It takes work on your part to kind of sit and say, how did I arrive here? But the first thing to do is to identify where here is. And whether you're a healthcare practitioner or a healthcare consumer, implicit bias plays a huge role in your experience with medicine, your experience with the healthcare system, your experience with your patients, your experience with your practitioners. So I invite you to pause the podcast, click on the show notes, go to the project implicit link and take the test. Um, Take the time to review your answers or not review your answers, but review your results And then join me back and we're going to talk about both sides of this coin as it relates to healthcare implicit bias from the practitioner standpoint, as well as implicit bias from the consumer standpoint. And I'm even going to share with you guys, this is so nerve wracking. I don't get to see your results, but I will share my results with you. So I'll see you back in just a moment. The first time I took this test was in my undergraduate nursing studies at University of Washington. Shout out to Robin Naram. She was the professor that I had in a class called Social Justice in Healthcare, and uh, she did a wonderful job uh, teaching that class and moderating the conversations that came up. If you are a person of color and you've been in a class where white people were being challenged about the way they um, subconsciously think or act or may not always take into consideration cultures that differ from theirs, then you can imagine how heated it got in that room sometimes. But Robin did an awesome job teaching that course and was uh, the person who you know, the, the introduced the implicit association test to me. Um, they talked about it on the Oprah so, show, uh, but they didn't really talk about the test as much as they talked about. We all have our biases and, and blah, blah, blah. So are you ready for my results? Uh, so nerve wracking. My results, um, and by the way, I think I did mention previously, but Um, There was mention that even if you're a person of color, if you live in the U.S., you probably 
have experienced the prevalence of white supremacy so much so that you have your own implicit bias uh, against darker skinned hues and a preference for uh, lighter hues. Um, that was not the case with my results, you guys. My results um, when I took the test the first time were that I had no um, gender, sexual identity preference. I had no religious preference. Um, and when it came to skin tone, I had a moderate to strong preference for dark skin. And I had to sit with that myself because I'm in a service industry. I mean, healthcare, we serve people and we don't get to choose uh, what our patients look like and patients don't get to choose what their practitioners look like. We get thrown together and the hope is that there will be an exchange that is beneficial um, to both. Uh, but oftentimes, that's not the case. I have experience on both sides of that coin. But before I go into that, I want to talk a little bit about my results and how did I get there? Um, so when you take a test like this, the goal isn't to feel bad about what your result is. The goal is to learn a little bit more about yourself and to give you some direction and how to move forward in a way that is less biased. Um, so for me, I, I was racking my brain going, how did I get this moderate to strong preference for dark skin? And then I realized, you know, my dad was a black man and he loved me and he was an awesome father and provider and person. And my mom is a black woman and she loves me and she was an incredible mother and nurturer and um, my grandparents were black my aunts and uncles are black my siblings that I'm very close with were, were black my cousins were black um, my pastors you know it goes on and on and on because I'm black and come from a uh, a black culture, black American culture, when I see dark, when I see a word like love, I associate that with dark skin because all the love that I received coming up was from people with dark skin. Now, I went to predominantly white institutions for my education. And that was a different experience. Uh, there was a lot of ignorance. Um, there were a lot of things that... I'm not talking about intentional ignorance, and I'm not talking about blatant racism. I'm talking about, you know, people being concerned if they treat uh, a Native American patient's pain that they're going to become an addict. <laughs> I've had a nurse come to me and this was a nurse of color. She wasn't black, but she wasn't white either. And her literal words to me were, I know we're not supposed to practice race-based medicine, but the patient is native and this is what's on their med list for pain control. Do you think I should give it? You guys, if your jaw's on the ground right now, then you feel how I felt when I was asked that question. 
you know, my response was, I think you just answered your own question. (laughs) You know what I mean? We're not practicing race-based medicine here. You know, if you wouldn't stop and ask that same question of a white patient, then why on earth would you stop and ask that question for a native patient who's undergone surgery nonetheless? Anyway, um, knowing what our associations are helps us to understand ourselves. So a lot of my anxiety-inducing situations happened around white people. A lot of the times that I've been comparing myself or not confident in my appearance or, you know, um, ashamed. I've actually had times in my life where I've been ashamed of my hair, y'all. And I have thick, long, beautiful hair, but my hair is not like white people's hair. And it has drawn a lot of attention over my life where people want to ask me questions about it or touch it or, you know, and so that puts me on edge and I literally have an increased heart rate. And I'm like, is this person going to touch me? And how do I navigate that without catching a case, if you know what I'm saying? Um, So a lot of the words like fear and anxiety, you know, lonely, those words I implicitly associated with lighter skin at the time that I took that test because that's the framework that I experienced those things in. So if you just took the test and you got some results that are making you feel some type of way, the first thing I want you to do is just observe. Don't judge yourself based off of your results, but just observe and and note, maybe ask yourself, how did I get here? Um, because that's the most important question. Were your experiences real? I can tell you when I am the extreme minority in a room, my anxiety is often through the roof. But is that because the people in the room are hurting me? No. Is it because the people in the room are are posing some sort of harm? No. It's just the keen awareness that I'm different and maybe a focal point at some times. Um, I kind of liken it to people who get annoyed when folks speak their native tongue around them. I've always thought it was really funny when people think that folks talking in another language are talking about them. It's like, seriously, get over yourself. Like, nobody's thinking about you, (laughs) you know. But the same could be said for me uh, back then in those rooms and those spaces. My anxiety was real, but my fear was irrational. This test really gives an opportunity for us to explore some irrational beliefs that we might have. So once you identify those irrational beliefs, what do you do? Uh, I think the most important thing for us to do is to acknowledge them, to acknowledge that we got there somehow and that we have to check ourselves when we're in certain situations so that we don't perpetuate uh, acting or, or thinking, which leads to acting in ways that are prejudiced. And that's work for all of us, not 
it's not just work that white people need to do. It's work that we all need to do. Um, and from the healthcare practitioner standpoint, it's really dangerous for me to presume anything about a patient without asking. And on the other side of that coin, you guys, I could go on and on and on with stories about patients that I've cared for who told me things, with stories about my own family members, and with stories about myself when I went to seek care and was met with ignorance, you know, um, yeah, it's real and it's happening every day. And unfortunately, a lot of us are participating in that. In an article called Implicit Bias in Healthcare Professionals, a systematic review, this is, uh, I'll put the link in the show notes, but um, it's an NIH article that looked at 42 articles um, and came to the following conclusion. Our findings highlight the need for the healthcare profession to address the role of implicit bias in disparities in healthcare. Uh, And later there is this statement and it really resonated with me. It is, whew, (laughs) I'll I'll just read it. A patient should not expect to receive a lower standard of care because of her race, age, or any other irrelevant characteristic. However, implicit associations, and these are unconscious, uncontrollable, and irrational processes, may influence our judgments resulting in bias. Implicit biases occur between a group or category attribute, such as being black, Uh, which is a negative evaluation and implicit prejudice, or another category attribute, such as being violent, which is an an implicit stereotype. Um, So let's let's talk about this, providers. Um, What does implicit bias look like for me in practice right now? This is... uh, (laughs) a very candid and vulnerable moment. We have patient pictures that come up on the, um, in Epic, the electronic health record system that we use. And uh, if I see a picture of of a a heavy set, uh, maybe bearded white man with a ball cap and an American flag on it, um, and then I, I click into their demographics, and I see that they live in a rural area, maybe a really red uh, area in terms of voting. And I do their chart review, and I see that they, um, you know, just have different things that I implicitly associate with racism. I'm guarded. And in fact, I'll tell you something that, that I do. Um, And guys, I'd love to hear your feedback. I'd love to carry this conversation on in a more interactive way. Um, So check out my Instagram, at DTheNP, and uh, you'll see a post for this episode, and you can comment below. 
I wear my white coat in those rooms whenever I feel that my knowledge or expertise may be challenged because of my race. I wear my white coat. And uh, interestingly, in our group, we have three uh, nurse practitioners and three physician assistants. Two physician assistants are men, and the other four of us are women. And the only ones of us who wear our white coats are women. Um, so that's another thing uh, that I just think about as I rack my brain. I'm like, yep, I put my white coat on before I go in those rooms. And I do that because it has my name on it. It has my um, credentials on it. And it just clears up the questions that I have had to answer when I don't wear my white coat. For instance, who are you? Where did you go to school? So are you qualified to do this? I'd rather see the physician. Can I be rescheduled with somebody else? I've had all of those things said uh, to me. I actually had <laughs> actually had a patient once who was using um, the translator to speak and uh, for us to communicate with each other. She was speaking just fine, um, but we had a language barrier, so we had a translator. And the translator stopped and said to me, I feel obligated to tell you what the patient is saying. Um, you don't know anything. You're just a nurse. We need to talk to a physician and on and on. And it was pretty uncomfortable for me because um, they obviously due to the language barrier, didn't know that the translator told me the things that they were saying. And it was hard. It was hard, you guys, to just kind of finish the visit and act like I didn't know what was being said. Um, but anyway, that's one of the things that I do on my end um, where I have to check myself and check my own bias and go, you know what? And this has happened multiple times, you know, 99% of the time when I meet the patients that I was like, oh, I better put my white coat on for this one. They're lovely. They're actually just quite fine. And I think that the same thing happens on the other end where they might be, you know, I see people kind of be taken aback sometimes when they first see me step into a room, um, but we're hugging each other by the end of the visit. And I've actually had people say to me, you know, I was kind of worried when you first walked in or I was worried when I saw that I was going to be seeing you, um, but I just want you to know I think you're great or you've explained more to me than anybody ever has. And I so appreciate you. I've gotten flowers, I've gotten cards, which I don't know is very unusual for nurse practitioners to begin with. Um, but it's interesting because there is always this tension that we have to work through. You know, first we're nurse practitioners, and so sometimes people think that means they're going to get uh, a subpar care, which, by the way, outcomes do not support that at all. Then I'm a woman, and then I am black. Um, so 
And actually, I was black and a woman before I was a nurse practitioner. So that's kind of on my end how that works. I I tend to be a little more formal when I first meet somebody. Um, I tend to wear my white coat. I tend to code switch, you know, and, and talk in a way that I know is going to be respected by people who are, or a way that I know is going to be perceived as me being educated, um, which is crazy. Isn't that crazy? Um, but yeah, and, and let's just talk from the, from the patient end. Um, I'll give you guys two, I'll give you guys one, one story. One story because it kind of encompasses a lot of different things. I was at work one day, and this is when I was in bedside nursing, and I got a patient who had been a crime victim. They were uh, African-American, and they were transferring from a higher level of care to my unit, which was progressive care. And when I went in to meet the patient, they were... um, their posture was a posture of pain and medical practitioners know what I'm talking about, but for other listeners, very, very rigid, um, very quiet, shallow breathing, just everything about this young man screamed, I am in pain to me. And I had read in the chart notes that he was on patient controlled anesthesia. So I'm like, where's his PCA? It was wrapped up and hanging on the pole completely out of his reach. Now, the CNA I was working with is chatting, you know, saying different things. And one of the things that she said was, can I give him a shower? He really needs a shower. And um, I was trying not to come out of my skin because... um, they just didn't understand what was going on. So I kind of, what I said to her was, can you just grab a, can you grab a set of vital signs first? And I, while she was getting the vitals, I was getting the PCA um, uh, button down and I held it in front of him and I said, has anybody told you how to use this? And he shook his head no. And I said, this is your pain medication. And this is how you get your pain medication. It is a button that you push when you need medicine for pain and you cannot overdose yourself. There's a lockout period. The medication dosing is adjusted for you. Okay. So you're not going to overdose yourself. If you hit the button too many times, you'll lock it out. I said, I don't want you to be afraid of pushing the button because we use the number of clicks to determine how well we're managing your pain. If you only click the button twice in an eight-hour period, then we can probably put you on pills rather than the IV medicine. If you click it 27 times, then we probably need to give you a stronger dose. And I asked him if he had any questions. I told him nobody could push the button for him. He had to be awake and, and do that himself. And he pushed the button, you guys, and you could just watch everything come down. So the CNA had already gotten the vital signs and his blood pressure was high. His heart rate was high. His respiratory rate was high. Um, his temperature was normal. And I said, yeah, you know, his, his blood pressure is pretty high, isn't it? And she goes, yeah, but he's black. Because the assumption is that all black people are hypertensive. I don't know. 
And so I said to her, I said, those vital signs are evidence of pain. He's sweating because he's in pain. His blood pressure is up because he's in pain. His heart rate, you know, and it went on. And I said, what I want you to do is to come back in an hour and get another set of vitals, okay? And um, no, we're not going to shower him until he's comfortable. So she comes back in an hour and she gets a set of vital signs and she's reporting them to me and they're normal. And I said to her, you know, you can't assume because somebody's black that that's why their blood pressure is high. His pain was poorly controlled and we've actually failed him. He's in the hospital um, with a significant uh, trauma and his pain wasn't being addressed. Um, so I give that example because there is this idea that we don't feel pain, that African-Americans don't feel pain in the same way, or that we have a tolerance, a higher tolerance from pain, for pain. And that's actually um, a, a, a slavery era mentality that people used to tell themselves so that they could feel good about brutalizing my ancestors you know, um, oh, they don't feel it as much. You know, just because people don't respond to pain the same, maybe some people aren't as vocal or whatever, they don't complain as much, it doesn't mean they don't feel it. Um, also in that example, he wasn't even, you know, I don't know if if the previous nurses thought because he wasn't talking because he was definitely, definitely distant, definitely um, poor eye contact, all of those things that basically communicate, I don't want to talk to you, get out of my room. But I don't think anybody put themselves in his position. He'd probably never been in a hospital before. He was young. He just went through a trauma and a major surgery. Like, come on, this kid is traumatized. And here we are acting like they've got to throw us a bone for us to engage. Uh, that's not right. And I think that there was a lot of um, probable implicit bias that went into uh, his quote unquote care, if you want to call it that, prior to us meeting. Um, now I want to flip the uh example the other way. Um, and I've been guilty of this. And since I'm using myself as an example, I will continue to do that because I certainly don't want to judge anybody else. And, and even in that scenario, I'm not judging, you know, anybody in that scenario. I'm just curious about how did we get there? I have never, ever before seen somebody brought to me or transferred, you know, I've never received a patient who had a PCA and didn't know how to use it, wasn't even aware that it was there. I mean, wow. Um, so how did we get there? That's that question again. How did we get there? Now, from a patient perspective, I am tall, I'm curvy, I'm dark skinned, I got kinky hair. 
nobody looks at me and thinks that one of my parents may not be black. (laughs) I am blackity black, okay? And I'm aware of that. And I'm also aware of how people perceive me. Hello, black women. We're supposed to have an attitude. We're supposed to be snaking our necks all the time and sucking our teeth and whatever else people think of us. So a lot of times um, when I've gone in for care for the first time with a new medical practitioner, I've been guarded. And I got to see if this person's going to look me in my eyes, if this person is going to um, even try to engage or just kind of treat me like I don't matter and they just want to get in and get out. And the degree of engagement that I have offered in the past a lot of times has been dependent on that. Can I just tell y'all, share y'all something that drives me absolutely insane? This doesn't, I don't know if this has, this doesn't have to do with implicit bias. It's just something that happens that I'm just like, what? I cannot stand when white people call me girl. I'm not talking about my friends that are white. I'm talking about people that I barely know. And it's like they see me and they're like, oh, hey, girl, or how you doing, girl? And I'm like, what about me, says girl? I'm like grown, grown out here, right? Um, that's, you know, so I'm, I'm like when I first meet people, I'm keenly aware and maybe hyper aware of little things that they switch up or do in my presence. And I let that kind of determine whether or not I'm going to trust this person or not. Um, My gynecologist and obstetrician is uh, the first doctor-patient relationship I ever had. Uh, I was pregnant with my oldest when I was 16 years old. I was 17 when I delivered her. And everywhere that I went, people's reaction, they were just acting funny. There was zero compassion whatsoever. And my mom was and is just, she was an awesome mom. And she didn't make me go back to anybody that I wasn't comfortable with. And when I met Robert Prince who has been my gynecologist for 22 years. Um, and I think we just hit 22 years. He's a white man. And, I, and I'm telling you this so that if you're like me and you're finding that you have bias, you know, you can change it. You don't, you don't have to act out what it is that you represent. He was so loving and so warm and so caring from the very first day I met him. You know, um, when you're going to your first prenatal appointment, they make you take a urine pregnancy test. And, um, you know, you take the test and someone comes in the room. Now, my previous experiences, because I want to say he was maybe the fourth or fifth doctor I had tried to go to. You know, they would come in and it was almost like, you know, I was a bad kid and they were going to, you know, just let me know that they disapproved of my pregnancy status. Um, None of them knew that that was my first ever experience. None of them knew that uh, I, I had, I knew Jack about being pregnant. I was terrified. I was a kid, you know. And there was just zero compassion. When I met Dr. Prince, he came in the room and he goes, congratulations, you're going to be a mom. 
And for the first time in that experience, did anyone say anything positive to me and treat me like a human? That connection, you guys, that we make with our patients, that very first connection, it's so important. And that's the reason why I continue to drive over an hour to see him for my care. I've never even had so much as a pap smear from another provider except for him because we built that trust over 20 years ago and I felt comfortable following up. I felt comfortable coming back. I felt comfortable asking questions. You know, and that wasn't something that I had experienced. Now, how many times are you going to go to the same person if they treat you poorly? Most of us, if we have a choice, we're not going to do that. But what we have to look at is what is poor treatment. Because what someone might perceive as being treated poorly may not have been, you know, intended at all. Um. One of the things that cracks me up to this day, um, you know, I grew up in church and we were huggy. You know, we greeted each other. We greeted each other with a holy kiss. There was you. You got seven hugs before you sat down. And um, when I moved to my current city of residence and was going to church, people would move away from us. Like you'd sit down and they'd scoot over. And there was no hello, no how you doing, no hug. They would literally scoot over. And I was so terrified by that. I was like, my God, these people are crazy racist. They don't, I mean, we're in church and they don't even care. It was, it wasn't until years later um, when a good friend of mine uh, explained to me that space in her culture is a sign of respect. (laughs) I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Spanglish, but my favorite scene in that movie is when the little girl says to her mother, I just need some space. And her mother says, no space, no space between me and you. I grew up in a no space situation. Okay. (laughs) So space didn't equal respect. The only time that you were given any space is if somebody said, you know what? I don't even want to look at you right now. Get out of my sight. That's when you knew you were really in trouble and that was the worst feeling ever because, man, your parents didn't even want to look at you. But look at how that was different culturally. Like people are trying to show respect and I was perceiving it as racism. So something to know, you know, as you're sitting with your how did you get here Think about experiences like that where you may have perceived something far differently than how it was intended, okay? Um, Because if I hadn't have continued to be exposed to white people, I might have made a quick judgment that they don't like us and don't want to be near us and, and left it at that. And I think for a lot of folks who are the majority, unfortunately, that's what happens. They're not, you know, continually exposed and able to learn that, oh, you know, these people aren't jerks. They're not hateful. This is the way they show respect. Um, cultural competence, I feel, is a term that should be thrown out and cultural humility I should replace it. I'm going a little bit long uh, on time. And this is a subject that I'm really, really passionate about because it affects 
the kind of care we receive. It affects whether we're going to go back for follow-up. It affects whether we're going to establish care. It affects whether our patients are going to follow up with us, whether they're going to trust us with the care plan you know, that we've prescribed. If they think that we don't care about them, why would they take the pills that we prescribe to them? If, if somebody was rude to me, I'm certainly probably not going to swallow a, a pill every day that they prescribe. That There has to be trust. And ways that we build trust are acknowledging where we're at and what we need to do. So quick thing that I do um, before I go in any patient room or any exam room is I just check in with myself. I know who I am. I know what I'm doing, what my intentions are, and I hold space for the person that I'm about to engage with to tell me who they are, tell me what they know, and engage with me. I'll end with this. Uh, The last nursing unit I worked on prior to becoming a nurse practitioner I was often asked if I would train in the ICU and take a position in the intensive care unit. And my answer was always no. And finally, my nurse manager asked me, why? She said, you, you, you get it. You, you get it. You're good at this. We think you'd be great down there. Why do you keep saying no? And my answer to her was because... An intubated, sedated patient can't talk to me. I said, you guys think I'm good. But the truth is, I listen. People will tell you what's the matter if you listen. If there are five diagnoses in our differential, four of them come from listening to what the patient is saying. So... I hope that the implicit association test has allowed you to check in with where you are. I'm happy to report that I have taken the test recently and that bias no longer exists because I've been able to actively work at checking myself. Why am I feeling like this? Why am I thinking this way? Why Am I nervous in this situation? Where does that come from? It's work, but it's work that we have to do. It's work that we are actually obligated to do because we can't be good healthcare providers if we're not able to listen past our bias. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Um, I'm excited for some of our upcoming guests. Uh, you can follow me on my Instagram is at DTheNP, as is my Twitter, and then my YouTube, uh, which I also think, I, I believe is at DTheNP, or if you search DTheNP, you'll find it. Uh, you can follow the podcast there or share that with family members who may not have a podcast player Thanks again for your time and meet me on Instagram. I'd love to hear uh, how you guys 
interpreted your test results and how you feel about taking implicit bias in healthcare head on. Bye. For listening to the Purple Stethoscope. I'm your host, Devin Nixon, family nurse practitioner. You can find me on social media at D the NP. That's on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and now Patreon. If you liked what you heard, go ahead and share this episode and then head over to Patreon to see how you can further support this work. Uh-huh.